speak the charm of make charm of make charm There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will rule the world. This is the Arnamancy Podcast. Exploring esotericism, tarot, magic, and the occult. I am Reverend Eric. On this episode of the Arnamancy Podcast... We have Scott Gosnell. He is an entrepreneur, writer, scientist, wizard, and translator of Giordano Bruno. He just finished his most recent translation, 30 Statues, and we're going to be talking about that. We're also going to be talking about some of Bruno's stranger bits, such as his method for binding entire cities. And we're going to get into a little bit of the story of Savonarola and Machiavelli. So before we do that, though, let's talk about some upcoming events. This is all happening in 2019, just in case you're listening in the future. First, Friday the 13th in September will be my first live podcast recording with Coleman Stevenson of The Dark Exact. It's going to happen at the Rose City Book Pub at 7 p.m. There's no cover, and I'm really looking forward to seeing everybody there. There's going to be a lot of local Portland weirdos and a lot of -of out-of-towners who are visiting for the uh, As Above conference. There's a link in the show notes, and I hope to see you there. Second, on Tuesday, September 17th, I'm going to be teaching an introduction to sigil magic at Invoke, which is a metaphysical uh, shop in the Montevilla neighborhood of Portland. I'm going to be covering chaos magic, planetary sigils, and even how to make your own custom sigils. The cost is $20, but there's only a limited number of seats, and I believe it's very close to sold out. So you're going to have to act quickly. There's a link in the show notes. And if you want to learn about future events, make sure to subscribe to my newsletter or follow Arnamancy on Facebook or both. Once again, there's a link on the website to get to all of those things. Now, relax, hold on to your hats, and enjoy my interview with my friend Scott Gosnell. Okay, here we go. Welcome back to the Arnamancy podcast. I am here today with Scott Gosnell, an entrepreneur, writer, scientist, wizard, and translator of Giordano Bruno, and also the host of the Startup Geometry podcast. Hi, Scott. Hi, Eric. How are you doing? I am doing good. I am excited to have you back on here, uh, in particular because we've got two Bruno books. You've translated two Bruno books since the last time I talked to you. And, um, and I've read one of them, <laughs> which is a great start. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, I think it's a, it's a testament to your ability to slog through, um, some Bruno's work when, um, when as a reader, I can't keep up with your translating output. So, uh, which is amazing, right? Because you kind of taught yourself Latin as you were translating De Umbris and, Right. So I may well be the worst uh, Latin translator in the business, but at least I'm fast and bad. So, (laughs) you know, I'd say when it comes to getting stuff like this out there, fast and bad is better than never. That's good. Yeah. I mean, think about the Corpus Hermeticum, you know, um, when when uh, when Ficino 
translated it. He apparently made some like pretty grievous errors in his original translation, but just the fact that he got it out there, you know, caused the the Renaissance to happen, the Italian Renaissance to sort of explode into being. So, you know, even if you're right. doing a, even if you're doing a bad job and we all misunderstand it, and five hundred years in, from now, like uh, you know, Wouter Hanegraaff's great 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 grandchild is like. Oh, that's Scott Gosnell. He screwed up the United States Renaissance with his mistranslation of Bruno. <laughs> that's right. But hopefully we will have had a golden age in between. Yeah, let's hope so. Let's hope so. <laughs> or at least that things improve slightly. I think we need something to kind of like erase uh, Descartes a little bit, just to, just to smudge, <laughs> smudge him out. Um, okay, so let's talk about... Uh, uh, so there are two Bruno books. The first one is On Magic. Um, which is kind of uh, not the same as a lot of the other Bruno you've been working on because it doesn't have, I mean, there's still some some memory stuff in here, but there's a lot of, um, a lot of it is kind of, it kind of reminds me of Agrippa. Oh, and there's parts where it seems like he's even paraphrasing Agrippa and then he's got like paraphrasing of the Lolian arts and then he's got all of his crazy stuff on bonds binding right um so the binding i think is probably the most interesting thing in here can you kind of tell us what bruno was talking about yeah well first in general it's just this collection of essays that he was working on uh right before he went off to venice to teach uh some nobleman uh, magic Oh. which they ended up not liking very well and uh, as a result turned him over to the Inquisition. So then this was sort of published in like maybe 1590 or 91? This was not published until the 19th century. Oh, wow. It was only it only existed all of these things only existed and in fact both both the books are only posthumously published. Oh. So yeah, so they were in two or three different manuscript forms, uh, one of which was at Augsburg and uh, Erlangen, and then uh, there was another copy that was in Moscow, or turned mm. up in Moscow, uh, called the Noroff Codex. And uh, for years I've been trying to hunt down somebody who can talk to the Russian National Archives, uh, sweet-talk them into you know, digitizing a copy of that, because mm-hmm. uh, it's it's got a lot of cool material in it. Well, um, have you thought of I don't know, like joining the Trump campaign? I hear they've got a lot of good connections over there. Yeah, we, I've been talking with them, but uh, you know, no dice, no no rubles. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, but it basically was. If you look at it, it's designed almost like a little magical library or little little kit that you can put together. So it's got, mm-hmm. you know, like a sort of a curriculum. You know, the one is how to do astrological medicine, which I'm pretty sure he was collaborating with one of his students who later went on to become a fairly well-known horticulturalist and a physician um, in Augsburg. And then, um, you know, there's another section that's on what he called mathematical magic, which is the and ritual magic stuff. Mm-hmm. But that also was like not his main bailiwick or not his, you know, not his main focus in life. Uh, so you notice that 
that whole section is just full of quotes from, you know, the Heptameron and Agrippa mm-hmm. and um, Trithemius and, you know, like all, all the greatest hits albums of right. the day. Right. And it's like, okay, here are the, here are the lists of angels and demons and, and spirits and whatnot. And sort of very preliminary, very kind of note taking version so it could almost um, just be kind of like his collection of notes on this stuff in case he ever right. needed it. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Right. So most of it is an amplification of what was called natural magic or natural philosophy. Um, and in particular, he was interested in um, taking elemental theory much, much further. Um, now, before we, before we talk about that, the interesting thing about the mathematical magic thing is that he says okay the reason that all of these spirits and other things are affected by stuff that you draw on the ground in chalk or you know that you write down on a piece of paper is because like math you're manipulating these symbols and the symbols represent an intelligible thing and the spirits are essentially intelligible things but like with much more autonomy to them oh that's interesting so have you right are you familiar with uh, Eoblicus's thoughts on spirits? Yeah, I've I've I just started reading on the mysteries. So. Yeah, so he's got a a bit in there where he talks about um, certain classes of spirits who are able to be tricked by things that are material simply because they are they're like uh, symbolic representations of reality, and the spirits, being non physical, have a difficult time interacting with things that are real or physical. Right. Yeah. So it's like it's like messing with computer programs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or AIs. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know, they can't tell the difference between, you know, bits that you've made up and generated and the ones that they that they would actually be seeing. Oh yeah, which is right. A fascinating way and, to look at it. You know, and the other thing that he says that's kind of cool is he mentions that like humans are one of the only species that has both, uh, you know solid physical form and an equal intelligible form. Mm-hmm. So like you're half and half, like uh, the Pico della Mirandola thing of, you know, you know how wonderful man is that he can be everything from, you know, a devil and a brute up to an angel and, you know, mm-hmm. all the way up and, and no God. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, uh, so then Bruno gets into the Lullian arts, which. Yeah. So. He had talked about before a little bit, uh, like in uh, Deumbris Idearum, with the wheels and stuff. Yep. So, and and in fact, the fourth book of his that I translated is all his Lullian works. Oh yeah, I've never looked at that one. I yeah, should... it's. Uh, I, I'll be. I'll be perfectly honest. It's kind of boring mm-hmm. because it's essentially it's how to do combinatoric logic. So yeah. He, Right, Lowell's idea was, right, you t- you use these wheels and you use letters to represent some kind of philosophical element, right? And programs where they label like, you know, the Athenor is A, and then it goes something goes to B, like the alchemical diagrams, you know, old timey things, or in just like you know, even 20th century logic where you're like, if P, then Q, mm-hmm. if not P, then not Q, right? And you do all of those combinations and things. And so Lowell was like, okay, 
he says, you know, his essential idea was he was going to convert uh, all of the Jews and Muslims to Christianity through his impeccable logic. <laughs> wonderful art that he had received from God while he was meditating on top of Mount Randa in um, uh, Majorca, right? Off yeah. in the Balearics. And so he's like, okay, like, how do you convince people? Well, you have to start from some point of agreement. Mm -hmm. So he's like, he says, okay, so he has this whole list of, of essential elements of the universe. And he does the, starts with the great chain of being where like there's the one or God or whatever, who's a, and then he's like, okay, then God is in heaven. That's B. And then, you know, angels are C and then, right. And so on. And humans are this and this and right. And animals and plants and minerals. And then something he calls in. So anyway, so he, he descends through this whole great chain of being, which, you know, Bruno repeats in, in, in these other works, um, you know, going all the way from God at the top out through these, what, what were Neoplatonic emanations or through other stuff you know, all the way down to inanimate things like plants. and Right, so you've got the great chain of being all laid out, and then you have um, other things which are propositions, like is this thing greater than that thing? Mm -hmm. Or is are they equal? Or are they, is this the beginning of that? Or is that the beginning, you know, is that the end of this? Mm -hmm. And so he has these essential, like, pieces of arguments, and he spins the wheels and recombines them in various ways. And the idea was that if you started out from something that everybody could agree on, then you could argue from there all the way up to like, we should all be Christians. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so he actually, you know, Lola actually tried this, went down to, um, uh, I think it was uh, one, one of the, the North African, um, one of the North African uh, uh, like, Emirates or, mm -hmm. or other areas and tried doing this. And they basically, they, they got so mad that they threw him out of court, first of all, and then they stoned somebody else thinking that it was him. Shit. <laughs> yes. So anyway, so it was a big, it was, it was a big to do, but uh, so Bruno was looking for techniques that would be more expansive and be, he was always looking for sort of the encyclopedic or the comprehensive look at things. And so he came up with this. He took these Lullian techniques and, you know, and then described that as his art of invention. So mm -hmm. there's the art of memory, which is backward looking. And then you have these arts of invention where you take these images or take symbols or take something else and you combine them in various ways and use that to come up with new ideas, come up with discoveries of true things, um, or whatever. That's uh, so, that's kind of fascinating. Was was Bruno sort of um, uh, pursuing that idea of Pan Sophia, like the ability to sort of gain all knowledge or or find a way to access all learning? Do you think? Yes, pretty much. Okay. And so he used the Lolian arts, the combinatorial arts. I mean that makes sense if you can come up with um with you know your your base concepts and uh propositions or whatever that um that cover all known knowledge then you can also discover all future knowledge. Right. Hmm. 
So, and, and sort of the Renaissance, they, they would have put it in, say, the times of Hermes Trismegistus, every, like everything was known, mm-hmm. right? Everything was correctly known, and it was only because, you know, of the gradual decline and fall of man as envisaged by, you know, and fall of the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. right? All, all the world is vanity and all this stuff. And so, like, the Renaissance is this, you know, it's spurred on by this rediscovery of classical knowledge and then from classical knowledge back further and further until you get to, you know, the primordial knowledge, which was perfect. Right. Right. And that, right. That's why all the fascination with, like, Atlantis and, you know, the ancient Egyptians and all this other mm-hmm. other stuff. So uh, the 30 statues is a way of dealing with these philosophical concepts, most of which he borrows from Aristotle. Um, and if you're doing the art of memory or, or the art of uh, invention, either one, you have to wrestle with the fact that these abstract concepts are not very easy to visualize just of themselves. Mm-hmm. So like uh, when I was a kid, you know, uh, I was in the Boy Scouts and, you know, they have the, the scout oath and the scout law and you have like all these attributes. The scout is, you know, trustworthy, loyal, helpful, blah, 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 all these things. And I remember they said, okay, each of you will do a have each of the, the kids in the Cub Scout troop do one of these things. And you're supposed to come up with a pantomime or a gesture for each of them. Okay. Right. And some of them are easy to do. Like, you know, you can see like reverent is one of them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you pantomime praying or something or clean, you know, you wash your face or your hands or whatever. Um, but other ones are really abstract and hard to do. So like thrifty, right? right. How do you, how do you visualize thrifty or uh, obedient mm. right? or loyal? Right. How do you, right? yeah. And this is, um, it's interesting. I mean, I know it's so Freemasonry or, or um, some of the, the secret societies that sort of taught these sorts of uh, systems of virtue got through this, through the use of sort of like shared symbolism. Yeah. You know, so everybody would know that this particular symbol was a symbol for this concept, like a shared symbolic language. Right. So that's what Bruno is basically trying to do in the 30 statues. Huh. He's coming up with like this big hierarchy. And of course, because it's Bruno, he's he does 30 of them because uh, that was his number, meaning like everything. <laughs> uh, even though he actually does 35 of them or more or less. Um, like he, he does another five that he doesn't include in the first like sets of them. And he gradually comes down from the ones that he says, you know, even these, you can't even pretend to have an image of. So you just kind of have to symbolize them and stick a name on them. Mm-hmm. So like the first one is chaos in, in the Greek sense, which, uh, Interestingly, Bruno does something where he says, okay, chaos is representing just basic space. Hmm. Right? And he says, so he says, now the there are two other statues that are with chaos. 
One of them is Orcus, who you'll remember from uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Except that it, here, uh, Orcus means uh, lacking something or like the, the vacuum, like the idea that vacuum sucks other things into it because it doesn't have something. And so like other things will flow into it. So it's like more, it's like less than zero. It's like negative numbers, um, Interesting. you know, negative content. And then there's matter on the other side represented by night or Knox, um, which is like matter, but unshaped matter. So it's space that is filled with something. Okay, so and that's chaos. Those, so yeah, those so that's chaos, Orcus, and Nox, mm-hmm. right? And so these are sort of also the dark gods of you know of Ovid and and uh, of the Greco-Roman world, mm-hmm. right? Primordial, dark, huge, you know, world-sized deities, right? Mm-hmm. And then he says, okay, on the other side. Um, you know the the other three infigurables or the other the sort of the positive trinity are the first mind which he kind of dodges around but it's essentially it's zeus or 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 god the father depending uh and then apollo the universal apollo and uh, the third one is essentially the holy spirit or love hmm. um Right. And so he says, okay, so Apollo in this represents form. So he says, okay, so Apollo is light and day and, you know, and sunshine and all this stuff. And therefore is the person or the, the entity which mixes with night or matter and informs matter, literally, um, to give it shape and to give it function. Right, and everything else comes out of that interaction. That's fascinating. That's okay. Uh, and then, how does how does the first mind work into that? Does the first, is the first mind the director of Apollo? Yeah. So the first mind is kind of like where everything happens. Okay. Sort so, of the um, so like Aristotle's uh, uh, first cause, like a primum mobile. Yeah. So okay. it, yeah, literally, it is the first cause. Got it. Um, right. And so it's also kind of the, the, whatever for, whatever the source of all information is or form is. Okay. So form. It's what produces everything else. But, and so like, it's the father and then the first intellect or Apollo is the son. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And then the Holy Spirit then, or love would be the binding force that makes things, that keeps matter, that keeps like Apollo's form and Knox's matter sort of glued together? Yes. So that's a consistent idea in Bruno. Okay, that's, well, that's cool. He had his own, that's basically like Bruno's creation story. Right. Hmm. And a lot of this is like all of Bruno's books have kind of another book that is kind of hiding behind the curtains or that he took and, and reworked to make it what it is. And so for this one, it's Ovid's Metamorphoses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a lot of the Greek myths, but it's primarily that one. Um, 
And so because he's not the most organized person in the world, um, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> but so like, so the funny thing is, is that he, he, he essentially reuses some of these, these forms where he mm-hmm. says, okay, so there are these first two trinities or triads. And then like, uh, the lower ones show up in different forms in, you know, like in a figurable form or like in a form that you can imagine. So like night, actually there's a goddess or a statue of night. Right. And he says, you know, she's riding in this carriage and like there are stars all around her and like it has all these attributes mm-hmm. to it. And the same thing with Apollo. So like, for example, he says, you know, she's, she's riding around night rides around in a two wheeled cart or, you know, literally like a, uh, she goes around on two wheels. So it could be a, a bicycle or motorcycle if you wanted it to mm-hmm. be, um, you know, she's, uh, called the old woman due to her antiquity for it's believed that she's as old as time. You know, she clothes herself in black, uh, because she has nothing. Mm -hmm. She's, uh, she rides a two wheeled chariot or on a motorcycle for as Pythagoras declares matter is somehow dual to the extent that it is the principle of multiplicity fighting against the unity and simplicity of light. Um, Wow. Okay. Yeah. Hold on. So, like, the, each of these is the element. Say, as, as Pythagoras declares, matter is somehow dual to the extent that it is the principle of multiplicity, fighting against the unity and simplicity of light. That's crazy. I mean, it makes sense. It kind of yes. makes sense in how matter is now too. I would, I think, right? Because. Oh, I don't know. Never mind. Let's right. not. I'm. I'm, I'm not going to say that stuff out loud because I'm just thinking of it just now. So I'm sort of like, does this make sense? <laughs> All right. Yes. Okay. So you know, they say things like, you know, one of her wings and the wheels of the car are askew, as if someone had drawn them apart forcefully. For in continuous change and alternating fluctuations of uncertainty, we perceive order. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, so there are all of these. Each of the each of the statues gets obviously thirty attributes to it, of course, um, or thir- thirty aspects. So, like Apollo is, you know, once you get down to a statue that you can you can actually look at, he's all sorts of different forms of oneness or unity, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know. Apollo above his chariot, not seated, but elevated, signifies one absolution, since the rational mind is not only one, but a unity. So as... His nudity denotes one simplicity, for all that is one is all that is beyond composition. Mm -hmm. Right, like there are all of these attributes to these things. As you you move down the hierarchy of statues more towards the, you know, uh, material world or the the real world or whatever, how, how yeah. do they, do they become more specific or more abstract or like, what are some of the other uh, levels like? Like he describes, okay, for example, um, uh, he goes through a whole series of them from Saturn, Prometheus, um, Vulcan, Thetis, which are all about 
beginning, middle, and end. Mm -hmm. So he says, okay, um, Saturn is about beginnings, all kinds of beginnings, right? Because he's the he's Zeus's mm -hmm. father. Um, Juno is about middles or media. So he goes through different things like, you know, because she's the queen of the air, therefore, um, you know, that's between the sky and the mm -hmm. earth, right? Is the upper air. And the birds are her children for the same reason. Um, right. And she's said to be a messenger or she's said to be this or that. So he, he works his way through this whole um, Aristotelian framework of causality. Mm -hmm. So things are like ultimate ends, ultimate beginnings, effective ends, um, efficient causes. All these things get a particular statue. Um, you know, he also goes through, uh, things like, uh, the horn of Achelous, mm -hmm. who was, a Achelous was a god of rivers. So his veins were supposed to be the rivers oh, wow. of the earth. And, and in the, the metamorphoses, he gets in a fight with, um, Hercules is one of Hercules labors and Hercules rips off one of his horns. And this horn is a horn of plenty. Mm-hmm. Right, so that the so his horn becomes a symbol in Bruno's system of having, okay, or to have. Right, so all the different ways you could possess something, all the ways that you could, for example, have mm. attributes. So right. this particular system of statues that Bruno comes up with, since they're all sort of based in the, you know the the story land and, and symbol set of, of Ovid's metamorphosis. If somebody's going to, um, to translate this into a modern, uh, world, like if you wanted to use Bruno's system, uh, are his 30 statues still relevant? Like, did you get a sense when you were done with this, that it had this, that it, did it have a sense of completeness to it? Um, <laughs> not really. No. Um, it's, more of interest from the standpoint of here's how you would operationally take anything that you wanted that was a um, that was in any way abstract or hard to picture and gradually converting it into um, into an emblem you know like those old emblems that they have in both the, the alchemical works and in other works uh, where you have some sort of image and it says, okay, whatever you're looking at in, you know, whether it's in these emblems or just in some artwork, you can tell a story about why every detail is the way mm -hmm. that it is. And in telling that story, you can reconnect it to a philosophical argument or a logical process mm -hmm. or something else. Right. So if you are talking about the Mona Lisa Right, like her smile means something, and the fact that there the, there are waterfalls in the back means something, and right, and you can say, okay, the Mona Lisa represents, you know, mm -hmm. mystery, and you can't tell whether she's smiling or not, and right, right and go on and do that, or you can say, uh, 
you know. So then this is kind of a uh, really in-depth application of the art of memory or the art of invention in that, you know, so um, when you look at some of the really old stuff like Ad Herenium or whatever, the art of memory is sort of presented as this way for uh, rhetoricians to, you know, organize their arguments and put together an outline of their stuff and sort of like... So, but and Bruno here is just doing that kind of in great depth to to cover all of right. reality. So, right, and so you're kind of stacking this technique on top of the other ones that that he comes up with. So, like the core one is um, the stuff in Diombris Idiarum, um, where he sort of lays out the whole you know system for spelling things out or for representing things as a rebus mm-hmm. or doing things like that. And then you have the techniques from the 30 seals one where you, you know, you build little mini structures that somehow coordinate with mm-hmm. what it is that you're trying to remember. So like, like the one that we always do with the, the, the poem like the about chain. the Zodiac, yeah. right. The chain, the chain of the Zodiac and you, you know, you keep them in order. You know, there are twelve lines in it. You use the symbols of the zodiac, you know, the ram and mm-hmm. the bull and the right, so on and so forth, to to keep them in order and to keep them vivid in your memory. And you have them interacting mm-hmm. in certain ways so that you know, like yeah, one they tell leads a to story the other, and they go have comical interactions with each other, or sometimes they shoot each other. You know, <laughs> right? Or like the or or like the ones where he. he sets mm-hmm. up a garden um, and he says, okay, you know, like there are four pagodas in the garden and each of those is a different shape and one is round and one is triangular. And, right. And you have these whole, and you associate say the four seasons with the four, you know, the four pagodas or the four chambers that are sitting out in the garden. And then each of the three sections around each pagoda is one of the months and in that month is all of the fruits and vegetables and plants that are blooming or that mm-hmm. are active in that month. Or you could put, you know, all of the activities that are appropriate to that month right, or something right. like that. Or otherwise just say like, yeah, so you can do that. There's the other one that is the the quadratic star where he's essentially um, doing a hierarchical mm-hmm. list. And like you have your four main points and each of those have four points underneath them. Right, and then each of the those can be spun off into a into a little star of um, subpoints and and supporting points, and get finer and finer mm-hmm. and go down as far as you want. Yeah, and they get more and um, more complicated. So, right, and so like you can do a lot of things, and this is just an extension of the core system. Uh, now, what's interesting in this one is at least for me because one of the things that interests me about bruno is that he's a representative of psychology before it was really a scientific discipline but it's you can very clearly see it in transition from the old uh, philosophical idea of the soul into a very sophisticated like understanding of for example uh, he has a statue Mm -hmm. called demogorgon who is uh, you'll also recognize from Dungeons and Dragons, um, but who is like, and that that's interesting in and of itself because 
the Demogorgon figure is actually probably a misspelling of Demiurge. So, yeah. And so he was supposed to be this, you know, underground primordial deity who essentially makes everything for the, for the other gods. Um, but not like Vulcan. Vulcan sort of replaces him. Uh, And so in Bruno's system, this represents something called habitus, which is sort of like your nature or disposition. So like if you are a kindly person or you're intelligent or avaricious or something. Okay. Right. So these are like pre-existing dispositions that you have or like, Stuff that is not the expression of your nature, but it's like the source of it, or the is roots it, of it. Uh, is it an expansion um, on um, sort of like the earlier? Well, actually, maybe it might have. All right. So there was also the um, like the the Greek elemental system that was sort of used to describe people's temperaments, where you could have, you know, a little bit of a little bit too much fire in you, or a sanguine. No, that's not right. But yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. So okay, yeah. So you would have these dispositions or natures um, which are connected to your innermost essence. Then you have, on the other end, you have sort of faculties and capabilities that you actually deploy and that, you know. So there's a whole set of those that he puts around Minerva who -hmm. represents the mind or or intelligence in use. Um, And so there are, you know, loads of those and you know it's it's neat to see a very complex very fleshed out system of like all of the things that you know for example all of the virtues and vices you might have all of the you know capabilities to discern you know spiritual issues or physical issues why someone might be judicious about political matters but be bad in hmm. love, for example. Um, so all of that is in there, and that kind of pre-psychological model is embedded in the the bigger work. So that's that's kind of an area. Of, Do you think of that his, his um, pre-psychological model does it represent a um, like a method of diagnosis at all? It could, it could. Um, you know, one of the things that they talk about. Uh, is like if you look at Shakespeare, you see a lot of people doing things because they have a particular character rather than because of some biographical event that causes mm-hmm. them to act. In okay. So like people are, right? Like Romeo and Juliet are impetuous, not because they like, like that turned out well for them or like last week they tried something really risky and got away with it. And they were like, Oh, that was really great. Right. And then something bad happens and you're like, Oh, maybe I'd better be mm-hmm. a little more careful. No, they're right. They're both sort of impetuous people. Um, as right, you might expect right. from teenagers, it's, it's like but like, right. But the way that you get to that impetuosity is about like it is the nature of them to be impetuous rather than you know they have this vice of being impetuous mm-hmm. that they could work on right but you know it's something that's really heavily inborn and kind of like they're impetuous because their parents were impetuous and 
you know, they inherited that from from hmm. from their whole family, you know, and they're all Italians. And so obviously if you're a, you know, 16th century Englishman and you, you're like, oh, those crazy Italians, hmm. they're so emotional, right? And so like, if you notice, like all of his Italian characters are like, you know, they're really lively and really like demonstrative. Yeah, yeah. Because that's how the British thought they were as a nation. Well, it makes sense. Uh, uh, that's okay. That's interesting. So then, do the statues ever represent um, like physical stuff at all? They could. They could. You could. I mean, you you could design them to do so. But like these are these are sort of meant to be these these godlike figures that represent some okay. universal principle. And does he present sort of um, helpful techniques for designing your own? Uh, he does a few, but this is mainly literally about the whole idea of the logic and, and proportion hmm. and all this stuff. But he does elsewhere talk about, you know, if you are going to set up one of these images, here's how to do it. Here's how to design it. He talks about it some in, in um, On the Shadows of Ideas and some in on the composition of images, right? And he says, okay, like, here's mm -hmm. how you want to do it. And you kind of get a play-by-play -play of how he did it by the things that he says, like, you know, I ran through, like, you know, night is in this kind of a chariot, and she's got stars around her that mean this, and she's got a helper with her, and she's got, like, all these things. And so, you know, there's a logic to everything that you mm -hmm. put in the image, Right, so you're not only trying to make it vivid, but you're trying to cram as much information into it sure. as you possibly could. Thirty attributes, each one. Yep, and then on top of that, like elsewhere, he does talk about how, like, Ficino had the whole thing where he says, "Okay, the Egyptians had this technique for bringing statues to life." Yeah, right, and so you could talk with. Right. So he said they, they would talk with the gods, you know, it's mm -hmm. in the Corpus Hermeticum, right? All this stuff. And so Bruno is kind of having a play on that because essentially what you can do is if you want, right, you can set up a statue of Apollo mm -hmm. in your mind, right? Or Athena in your mind and talk with Apollo or Athena, mm -hmm. right? Or, right. Or like I said, I think in one of the previous episodes, like if, if you want to have Aristotle and Plato come and have an argument with you, right? And you do that all in your mind and your memory you and your imagination. You just enough images of them in there. Right. And so like, and you can assume that they know all mm -hmm. of their own work. So you can like ask them what this sure, stuff meant. Sure. And they will, right? And they'll be able to not only answer for you, but recite the thing. Uh, if, mm -hmm. if your memory is good enough. And, you know, as, as several uh, modern writers have observed, like, they won't just do that. Like, if you get good at this technique, right, you can have one of these people come and sit down with you, and they will tell you things that you don't know sure, you already. hear uh, fiction writers talk about that. Like, I think Stephen King talks about it where he's like, sometimes my characters surprise me, and I have I didn't even know they were going to do that. And it's like, a, it's the same kind of, same kind of concept, probably, huh? Right. So... In, I mean, you—it's obviously you doing it, but you know, from from a modern standpoint. But 
nonetheless, you as these characters mm-hmm. will surprise yourself. Uh, Bruno talks about that a little mm-hmm. bit in uh, De Umbris et Arm, where he talks about um, imbuing your your memory images with movement. Right. So yeah, you can do that, and you can you can get very very sophisticated with it if you want. Yeah, to. that's uh, man. I'm looking forward to reading this. I I wish that uh, I would have. Uh, like, I'm sure we'll talk again. <laughs> yes, I. You know, it's the third. We're we're at the third go round now, and um, you know, so now I know where you keep. You know, you don't even have to ask where the where the restroom is. And I've been over as a guest to your, your podcast enough times. Let's go back to um, the binding stuff from on magic, because you were mentioning that you wanted oh, yeah. to talk a little bit about uh, Machiavelli. And um, so we're basically, we're, we're rewinding the clock a little bit. This is probably about like, what year was Bruno born? Yeah. So I'll, I'll just, I'll just segue back over to uh, on okay. binding and the other stuff by saying, like the stuff that makes all of these things gripping and you know all of these images gripping and memorable is connected to these techniques that he came up with for how to bind a city, how to bind somebody else, or the rules for, for doing mm-hmm. bindings on other people. And he seemed to mean these both like in a magical sense, like I'm going to enchant you, right? I'm going to find some woman and and charm her magically and make mm-hmm. her fall in love with me or some man and like but also just like how do I persuade people so like that's all one side and then what makes him special is that it, as with the memory works he like takes everything to the nth degree and he's like well what if you could bind an entire city or nation hmm right? How do you persuade a mass of people, right? Because he was fascinated. You know, we, we'd talked on Twitter a little bit mm-hmm. about Savonarola, which also connects with the Machiavelli thing, because Machiavelli went and observed Savonarola, who was this Dominican preacher, friar, who appeared uh, during the, the rule of the Medici in Florence, and he starts preaching about, you know, the end of the world and you better all repent and people are throwing books and artwork out into the streets and burning them, bonfire mm-hmm. the vanities, all that stuff. And like he has this meteoric rise and soon he's pretty much running the city. Um, you know, the king of France is going to invade and Savonarola and some other people are go out and like, Talk and him this out is, of it. Uh, the King of France that would have been um, in the 1520s, or was this the earlier invasion? Yeah, that was. I think it was the teens somewhere. There was the one where Pico was killed the same day that the king showed up. Oh, that was the King of France. Yeah, okay, King of France. Right. Yes, that that's the one. That's the one where this happened. So, like, the King of France comes. They essentially bribe him into you know, leaving Florence alone and not mm-hmm. like killing everybody. Pico dies poisoned. the same day, uh, possibly poisoned. Uh, we don't know. <laughs> so, but like the whole, like those whole decades were yeah. completely insane. You know, like there were so many people who are sort of larger than life. Um, you know, 
that it's just it's you know one person after another so like there's what is it katarina mm-hmm. Swartza, who like gets captured along with her kids and she's like well let me go into the fortress and uh you know you keep my kids as hostages and uh, i'll go convince them to surrender and she goes inside and shows up on the battlements and says, you can do what you like with my kids there. And she like flashes her privates at the army and says, look, I have the means Shit. to make more. <laughs> Mother of the century. She was, she was a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know. So anyway, so uh, Savonarola right, rises quickly. He ends up, uh, like the Pope summons him to Rome to answer for things. And he resists and doesn't go, and just like yeah, his followers desert him. At some point, I think too. Yeah, he gets excommunicated, and right as soon as quickly as he appeared, he mm-hmm. right he's gone. It's like the um, the high sparrow of uh, yeah Florence. Machiavelli gets sent to like some of his sermons to like spy on him and see what's see what's up with this guy. And he says, you know, he's destined for a bad end because he was an unarmed prophet. So, like, all he had to rely on was, you know, his skills and persuasion. And eventually people saw through mm-hmm. all of his lies. Maybe a good lesson for modern yeah. politics as well. But uh, that was... Right. So Machiavelli is interesting because he kind of, he, he, he works to preserve Florence that was in this kind of, Basically, they're in the middle mm-hmm. of northern Italy, and so they're in a strategic hot spot. And so everybody is going to like try and march through their territory, or you know, there's always somebody who wants to conquer them or you know do something, and they have to kind of figure out a way to ally with people and you know appeal to the protection of either France or Spain at different times, or the Pope, mm-hmm. or against the Pope. And there are, there are all these shifting alliances and things. And Machiavelli sort of, he, he believes that it should be a republic. But then when they become a republic, they can't come to any decisions. And he says, you know, sooner or later, this kind of foolishness where you try and prevaricate on everything, mm-hmm. it's going to lead you to doom. You know, he says, there are only two ways that a republic falls. And one of them is you don't have, a def- you don't have an army to defend you. And the other way... Right. As if you're foolish. And he says, you know, so like he spends a lot of time getting a militia together so that they will have an army ready to hand that isn't, you know, that they don't have yeah. to pay for all the time. And that will be loyal because they're defending their own homes and the homes Instead of their of neighbors. Mercenaries. Right. And, and, and also. Well, they, they it was a, hmm? they got the militia together instead of uh, relying entirely on mercenaries, which I think was pretty common for the right. Italian states to do at that point like all the different little city states and so then he gets the he he gets sent around to be the ambassador to the king of france and to the pope and different people um in the era when like you mm-hmm. know it was the borgia popes uh the pope alexander who's uh, you know whose son was uh cesare borgia and right who went around who was you know, literally mm-hmm. cartoonishly evil. He was a he was a horrific person who even 
you know, he would like send one of his underlings off to terrorize a town, and then he would have the underling killed in some spectacular way, right? And he would say, see, I've taken care of this bad man for you. And so, right, so this gets rid of the, the ambitious underling, but it also terrifies everybody even more because, you know, that guy was his best friend right. three weeks ago. And, like, Machiavelli says, you know, he's really dangerous at certain points because, like, he has no allies left, you know, and all of you are sort of clumped together in a crowd, but, like, if he decides to do something, mm -hmm. he's going to do it, whereas none of you people can decide to do anything, oh. right? And he says, and you certainly can't agree amongst yourselves what to do. Like, do you defend Florence? Do you defend Venice? What do you mm. do? Right? And he says, so, <laughs> and eventually Borgia gets, uh, gets nailed by um, this uh, Pope Julius II, who says, uh, he says, you know, I'll, I'll become Pope, but don't worry, I'll be your friend and I'll, ta I'll take good care of you and you can stay on as Duke and, and rule this whole sort of central was Italian area. Uh, just Julius as you did under your father. And he's he like, oh, oh, great. No, he okay. was uh, Della Rovere. So he gets elected and he's like, guess what? <laughs> I lied. <laughs> and and he, just totally, he just totally mops the floor with him. First chance he gets. And uh, Machiavelli is like, yeah, that's how you got to do it. <laughs> Some... Right? And so Machiavelli, right, he gets thrown into exile and all these other things. And he's, you know, people are like, boy, this guy has written some really evil stuff, you know, which you can imagine because even now in, you know, in the 21st century or 20th century, people were like, boy, this is pretty, mm -hmm. this is pretty rugged. You know, you've got to lie, cheat, steal if you're going to rule. And, you know, he's like, you come to realize once you've read a bunch of his stuff and read read biographies and read the letters that he sends, he's actually a fairly pleasant guy. He's very funny. He's very you know good with his friends. But like he has this realization that if you tell princes to be virtuous and and good all the time, right, they aren't going to be mm -hmm. princes for very long because you've got all of these. Right. Shifting alliances and really right. terrifying people. Terrifying people right. tend to rise to power. Right. And your only hope is to do the things that you have to do, you know, without flinching. Mm -hmm. You do what you got to do and you go forward from there. You know, makes him a very mm -hmm. modern thinker in that way. You know, but you have people who mistake his like no nonsense pragmatism and like, the, the utilitarian bent to his thinking and they say, Oh, he's actually advocating that you be as cruel as possible. Yeah. And, when that's just, not the case yeah, either. Yeah. It's like, it would be better to be good and to be virtuous and to be loved, but you'd better also know how to lie your ass. Off. <laughs> right. You'd better know how to put an army together and march those guys over there and, you know, and wage war against the people who are coming up the coming up the peninsula at you, or yeah. you're not going to I mean, be there. Was there. A, there was a ton of incredible art right. and literature and stuff that came out of um, came out of northern Italy during that period of time. But man, it was a rough time. Rough time to be Italian. So then, so then, Ty, how, okay. So can you bring the prince back around to 
Bruno's binding. So, yeah, so so these two, the prince and the on bonds are, um, as uh, Jan Kuliano said, like, this is the other great political mm-hmm. treatise of the Renaissance. So, you know, it has all these rules for, like, how you would actually do manipulation mm-hmm. of the media. All of these things that now are sort of, they're almost passe, like, but like, if you wanted to, here's how you, here's how you use information. Here's how you use, you know, people's desires or people's fears and play upon them in such a way that you can have an entire city dancing to your tune. You know, one of the things that is particularly useful is that he sort of says, well, right. If you want to bind somebody with something, you have to have a piece of that something mm-hmm. in you, right? So you are most likely to say, you know, if, if you're really patriotic, right, you'll be able to convince other people of that love of country, right? If you are, you know, really mm-hmm. frightened of something, then you can draw other people into being frightened of that thing. Right. And you can't you it's can't fake it. Almost like yeah, yeah, I see how that is, but you can learn to fake it sort of, or you can fake it through the use of images. Right. So you can what you can do is you can make analogies and you can use, you mm-hmm. know, chains of images to right to extend what what it is that you're able to do, but you're still like as the person doing the binding are you still either have to be like totally neutral and like emotionless about it, or you have to be like totally swept up in it and like, you know, mm-hmm. part of the, part of the mob essentially. So when you see Donald right. Trump, right. Talking about, right. Talking about an invasion of immigrants, like, and these people are shouting all of these terrible things back at him. You see somebody who is bonding with uh-huh. the people yeah, in that audience. It's a terrifying thing to watch. Right. And like, and right. Mm-hmm. And like calls to like. And the other thing is, is that you realize, you know, this is not Bruno, but you realize like human intelligence is divisible. So like the number of people or how smart you are divided by the number of people <laughs> who are all thinking the same thing. Right. And so you see the mob in the sense that like all of these writers from the Renaissance forward were frightened Mm -hmm. of the mob in capital letters. You see, you you actually see the effect of that happening in real time, right? How those Mm -hmm. people can be turned into a mob, how they can, you know, of course now we have the even worse thing, which is that uh, it's not a whole bunch of people all together, right? Necessarily, although you can have it, but like, you can have yeah. this diffuse mob, right? You have all of these people who are inspired by some horrible thing that the They're president or somebody else has said, right? And so, and then, you know, you have these mass shootings, mm-hmm. you have, you know, the horrible things going on with the, on the border, right? Like it right. infiltrates everything. Well, and so you see like, it's in one sense, it's magic, but in another sense, it's like, you know, it's actually, there it's the you know the psychology Mm -hmm. of it is there uh yeah it's and part of it you know sort of plays on 
modern forms of communication and information dissemination. Like, you know, stuff gets everywhere instantly instead of taking weeks or right. months. You, you don't have the... I mean, I guess in my head, I always picture Savonarola as this, like, foaming-at-the-mouth preacher sort of calling to... You know, I mean, because, you know, one of the things that we have to remember is that in Florence at the time, there was like this, you know, the, the, the people who were doing the Florentine Renaissance were were hanging out with like the richest people in the city. It was basically like the 1% and their buddies. Um, But you still had the mob. You had the right. whole the who, who, who were probably really excited about Savonarola. They're like, oh, here's this guy who, who's just sort of, you know one of us who understands, you know, the principles of the church and blah, 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 blah. And so I'd always imagine him as sort of, you know, he would have, he would have definitely had that, that like attracts like nature to him, but luckily he couldn't. Right. So he's telling you, he's mm -hmm. telling you this totally compelling story. Right. And he says, okay, like I, I, I just sort of imagine him mm -hmm. like going through the book of revelation and he's like, here's, uh, you know, here's the plague that just rolled through a few, few years ago. Here's, you know, the wars. And there's like, this guy's going to attack or maybe not. You, you don't know what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. It's probably yeah, the end of the yeah. world. I mean, he's not that artless about it, but he's, he's saying things like that. And even if you are somebody as sophisticated on one level, you know, smart guy, rich guy like Pico della Mirandola, you're like, oh, gosh, like maybe mm -hmm. the world is ending. And so you're like, well, you know, I'd better find some some way to save myself, you know, and you say, oh, these people, they're all decadent. These painters are painting all these nude people. They're mm -hmm. all pagans, right? All this stuff. They're these rich people with gold and jewels dripping off of them, and they're throwing wild garden parties and, right? And there's this whole thing. And, and like, you know, after a while, you're like, oh, I'll, I'll show them. We'll, we'll yeah, get yeah. them. Right. And you have these these spasms of kind of, mm -hmm. you know, religious frenzy. And so Savonarola took good and advantage of that. And Bruno tried to systematize it. Well, it, you know, he wasn't trying he was to do it for the a, same reasons. Um. But he was trying. But he was mm -hmm. trying to understand how it worked, and you know. Th now there was some some thought that maybe he was trying to yeah. create a new religion. He was possibly the least persuasive person you could imagine. Like people got mad at him for all sorts of <laughs> really <laughs> silly things, right? But you know, like I said, he's the only person I can think of to get excommunicated not only from the Catholic Church, but from the Lutherans and uh, um, Even the, oh, the Church of the, England the Calvinists. Like <laughs> yeah, they were sort of like, well, and he's like, oh, I'm out well, here. Bruno uh, was probably a dick. You know, I mean, they when you ask that hypothetical question yeah. about, like, if you yeah. could pick somebody from the past to go have lunch with... You know, as much as I would like to say Bruno, I would probably not want to do Bruno because, you know, he I would I'd probably get really pissed off at him. Yes, there would be there would be a, an argument. I mean, he was a he was a funny guy apparently. Um but yeah, he was a uh, he, he could get in a fight with himself <laughs> if there wasn't anyone else around. Ah. Uh, to fight. Scott, this has been this has been a really 
dense conversation. There's been a lot of stuff going on here. I've been taking notes as you've been talking, and I have never taken this many notes during a conversation before. <laughs> um, it's good, yeah. That's uh, good. So maybe let's 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 tie it all up. Let's um let's come to a a conclusion. So we have so we talked about uh we talked about the new book, the Thirty Statues, which is almost like uh Bruno's uh uh Arist- Aristotelian cosmology that uh, involving complex images and these statues that map everything from like the the most rudimentary parts of creation down to concepts and ideas here and then we went back and we got into the last parts of um on magic which is uh the art of binding or wait what's the actual title there it's oops it's way back here on bonds in general um and tied that to possibly stuff from Savonarola to Machiavelli to Trump. Yep. That all right, that's that's a that seems like a modest scope. Yeah, that's a, just a few <laughs> a few light few light items. Um so I'm almost done with the whole Bruno project. Uh I had originally, you know, only thought I was going to do the one. And now I'm I, I think I will probably finish up the uh, the two works on the art of memory that I haven't done yet which are the Song of Circe and on the composition of images. And that's a big one. Circe's a little one. You know, I'm almost done with Circe uh, right now. And then I think I'm going to just forget all the Latin that I ever learned. Uh, I don't know. There's more out there. <laughs> there's a lot out um, so there but i need to i need to be doing other work yeah well that's exciting that'll be what like seven eight total bruno books that you, something you like that yeah in? and then you're gonna you're gonna release them all as sort of like one ginormous tome we'll see about that yeah yeah all you, right you know cool. the, the 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 book work that you know people like um alkistus Demac does with um, Scarlet Imprint. It makes you really want to like do a beautiful big hardback, you know, leather bound, snazzy book. But I, I lack her artistic capabilities, so I'm a little doubtful as to whether it's going to end up uh, coming out well or not. Well, you know, it's a big world out there, and maybe something will come along to um, to help you produce something like that. Uh, where can people find you online? So I have a blog at uh, bottlerocketscience.net. Um, I'm on Twitter at infinite underscore me. I am. Uh, I have the the podcast which is inactive right now, uh, the Startup Geometry podcast, where I interview. It was originally going to be all entrepreneurs, tended to be more of the wizards and the writers, but we'll you know we'll see if that if that comes back anytime soon and you can also find me being interviewed in wonderful leading podcasts like this one (laughs) well it's been it's always such a joy to talk to you because uh not only do i i love your work but you have such a an amazing scope of thought on this stuff that i i always walk away with more questions than i entered with so thank you so much for being on and um i'm sure we'll see you again soon great well i look forward to it 
Thank you for listening to the Arnamancy Podcast. You can find me online at arnamancy.com, where you can schedule a tarot reading or peruse the Arnamancy blog. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. If you like this podcast, support it for just $1 a month through Patreon at patreon.com slash arnamancy.com.